0: For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive.
2: Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Derek Thomas. He is chief growth officer at AE Global. He's also a strategic advisor at the Ocean Recovery Group. We're going to talk to him about both of those organizations, what they do there, and really what's going on in the world of cannabis, what's going on particularly in the, uh, the Florida kind of southeast market. One of the things I love about cannabis is that each market is so different. And, and what we find out from folks being on the program is all the details of that and how the market is evolving, how things are shifting, and really where we're going as an industry. So with all that, Derek, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So before we dig into everything that you're doing today, let's get a little background. Tell us the story. How did you get into what you're doing? How did you get into cannabis? Give us the, uh, give us the journey you've been
3: on. Sure. Uh, I guess, you know, for me, that would kind of start in high school and college, you know, really just as a, a recreational time-to-time cannabis user. Yeah. And, you know, through college and then starting out my early professional career, which was in hospitality, totally unrelated as, as kind of a hospitality operator, mm-hmm. uh, I really began to learn more about the plant itself, not just, you know, on the kind of consumption side recreationally, but industrially, uh, what the cannabis and hemp plants could do and, what, you know, what they've done and been used for historically, and really just became enthralled with the total potential of the plant, you know, on the consumption side and on the industrial use side. And I think around the same time of exploration and uh, understanding of, of the plant, I also got arrested uh, for yeah, yeah. possession of, uh, man, it was less than a gram. I was literally uh, smoking a joint on Miami beach. And, uh, you know, that was kind of my first and thankfully wow. only experience uh, with the legal side of the cannabis industry. Yep. But it you know that also opened up my eyes to you know the the just the the detriment that prohibition has had sure. uh, on us as individuals, on our collective understanding of the plant of of course, you know, minority communities and the impoverished. And uh, it was shortly after that time that I quit my career in hospitality and dove headfirst into the cannabis industry. Yeah.
2: And what was that like? I mean, it was this uh a difficult decision, complicated decision? Like I'm always curious when people kind of shift from sort of non-cannabis industries into cannabis, how they make it, what they learn from the process, the impact it has on their lives and
3: reputation, uh, you know,
2: relationships. Yeah, Give us the story.
3: Yeah, well, for me, you know, it was really early in the infancy of the legal cannabis industry. I mean, this was sure. almost 10 years ago yeah. when there wasn't much of a legal industry. There was still a lot of gray area and not understanding of what the industry was going to look like. And I actually didn't get involved in the consumption side, in the recreational or medical side. My first opportunity um, was to start as co-founder a hemp-based clothing company. So I moved to Los Angeles and we did some fundraising and you know we found all the partners that we needed to find. And then we, we launched our brand, which was called Hemp Blue. And it's actually still in business. It was recently sold... Uh, from the original group of founders to uh, another individual who was really excited about what the original mission was, which was to tell the story of industrial hemp. So, you know, the. Decision-making part of it was really easy for me. It was a no-brainer. Uh, I, I think once the opportunity kind of arose in front of me, it was instantaneous, I would say. But the transition was more challenging. Getting started in a new industry, again, especially where there were still a lot of eyebrows being raised at that time about what the industry was going to look like and, you know, what, what your intentions were and what you were trying to build. So that, you know, there were a lot of um, learning curves and growth opportunities baked into that. And uh, it was a great decision, of course. And I haven't looked back since.
2: Yeah, I love it, and I give you credit for using two puns in one sentence. There. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that. <laughs> um, and I'm curious, given your experience in hospitality, like what were you able to transfer? From your kind of professional experience into cannabis what what did you think you might be able to transfer that you couldn't, and then what were the things you had to kind of pick up
3: quickly as you as you got into the cannabis world you know on the the things I thought would transfer that that didn't I think was on the operational side, you know understanding how to operate a business and you know having a lot of kind of operational experience within hospitality, I must have opened I would say fifteen to twenty hotels and restaurants throughout my time. So I was really confident in the ability to start a new business and operate it properly and and make it profitable. And, you know, the challenges around that were, well, one, we were in clothing, which was totally different type of operation and, and understanding, but also, you know, the, the, Supply of hemp and cannabis. It was really, again, a gray area at the time. When we started out, we weren't sure, you know, where we were going to get our hemp fabric from and if it was even going to be legal to, you know, import internationally. And, you know, it so many different types of challenges that I don't think could be foreseen. And I think where there was unexpected overlap, I developed a really strong understanding of The ability to kind of put myself in customer shoes and and understand, you know, what they would be looking for, you know, in in the original setting, it was what they would want, how they would want to spend their leisure time uh, and and what type of atmosphere and and what type of kind of story we could create for them to help them unwind and find kind of joy and contentment in their their free time. And uh, we, we developed a lot of strategies for that throughout the years to really, you know, empathize and understand your customer's mindset. Uh, and that translated really well, especially in the cannabis industry, where um, there there really wasn't this strong understanding of different types of consumers and and what that was going to look like yet. So that was a, a really kind of surprising and and beneficial transfer of of skill sets, I guess, was to really understand. And and be able to be forward thinking about where we might be heading as an industry.
2: Yeah, I, I could see that. Just the whole how to create an experience, really. The whole kind of understanding, kind of what a customer wants, kind of the attributes, you know, looking at market segmentation. Like, what is what is your core customer, and how are you going to serve them differently from other other brands and other products? So yeah,
3: yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah,
2: yeah. And then so, how did your cannabis journey kind of evolve? Like, where did you go from hemp clothing? How did things uh, play out for you?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, the hemp clothing was a lot of fun and we had a lot of initial success. We had a great Kickstarter campaign and this really, you know, strong, this was in the Kickstarter time, right? Of crowdfunding and yep. things like that. So we, we did a successful Kickstarter campaign. We had like this really strong kind of grassroots excitement, you know, especially from both the cannabis crowd and the sustainability crowd. And sure. it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a great time. You know, ultimately retail clothing was still not exactly where I wanted to be in the cannabis industry. So I made a, uh, A great transition out of that opportunity. Still very close with the with the rest of the founders to this day. Everything was very amicable, which of course always makes things so much easier when you're making your own transition. And this was three and a half years after we originally started the business. So spent a good amount of time there and you know, we really pushed it forward and had a lot of success. But Around the same time, there was uh, the really strong understanding of the other cannabinoids and and the other constituents of the cannabis plant—flavonoids and and terpenes—and we're really starting to come to the forefront and and their beneficial use, you know, through CBD and the other cannabinoids and and terpene profiles, and I—that's really where I was feeling a strong sense of desire and passion to be involved with them. Very big health and wellness guy. And, you know, this was kind of the forefront at the time of the future of the plant. Seemed like there was so much potential behind these other compounds, and I really wanted to be involved with them. So that was what I set out to do. And uh, I met some gentlemen over at the time. We were called All Wellness, which was a fledgling CBD or full-spectrum hemp oil Company really different from everyone else who I had encountered for the for the fact that they owned their own farm. Uh, They were fully vertically integrated. We had about 150 acres in Colorado, as well as an on-site extraction and small manufacturing facility. And it was um, it was really so pure in its intention and its product and its storytelling. I, I love the fact that we were farm to table, and we focused on you know integrated pest management and organic. Solutions instead of you know pesticides and, and fungicides, and we were one of the first to have a fully transparent certificate of analysis for every batch of products that we did, and it, you know we were. We, I, I like to think that we really helped kind of change the game of the CBD side of things. Uh, really strong, you know, commercial retail success. We were we made it in Publix and CVS and Rite Aid and Kroger, wow. uh, and it was it was a great it was a great time, and we we really built a really strong brand based off of a incredibly high quality product. So that was my you know that was the next step for me was on the CBD side and uh, on the sales and distribution side. But again, you know, just. Absolutely enthralled with being able to go to a farm and stick your hand in the soil where the plants are growing out of and, you know, just a few yards away, be able to follow that full product life cycle right on site. And then the best part for me was telling that story to our customers and allowing them to kind of participate in the excitement and the authenticity of that.
2: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about AE Global and and what you're focused on there, both, you know, company and role.
3: Yeah. So from Veritas Farms, I made the completely logical jump into cannabis packaging, uh, which, you know, was a surprise for me to get into this side of things on the cannabis industry. I never had really considered much about logistics, supply chain, packaging, manufacturing But when I met the founders, Mike Forenza and Jeff Davimos, and and really got a peek inside the world, I realized that there was this whole corner of the cannabis industry that I I really knew nothing about, but that seemed to be incredibly important and had the potential to be incredibly impactful uh, in terms of customer education and awareness, which I'm a huge advocate of. I think there's so much myths and disinformation that we as an industry need to dispel of, both you know, lingering from a century of prohibition, but also, you know, the past ten years of some nefarious actors and some bad science and some bad reporting. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of work that we can do there and, and packaging and storytelling is really a big piece of that. But also on the waste side, and I had never stopped to consider the impact of us as an industry, you know, in terms of waste and on the packaging side, you know, all the requirements around child-resistant packaging and the excess uh, packaging that's created around some of these legislative atmospheres in these different states. And I saw, you know, our mission to help companies tell their story better, uh, improve their supply chain and, you know, improve their impact as well. And it was the next opportunity that really spoke to my soul and what I wanted to be a part of. So again, the jump was not a lot of hesitancy. It it seemed like a really natural progression for me. Yeah.
2: We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. And talk to us a little bit about packaging. I mean, you mentioned a couple of factors that go in there, including the sustainability. you mentioned the uh, child resistance. like what when you're thinking about packaging in general, but packaging in the cannabis world specifically, like what are the things that start to come into
3: play when a company is figuring out
2: their packaging strategy?
3: Well, you know it really depends where the company is already at in in the development of their products. A lot of times if they're starting fresh, you know that's really the best time to consider things like sustainability or scalability you know, especially in such a fragmented marketplace where you may have intentions to scale one way, but then legislation will change in two of your biggest markets. And now you need to kind of completely rethink your packaging or your supply chain. Uh, So that's, you really hit the nail on the head there. That's a place that we love to focus is when you're first getting started, that's really the best time to understand the story that you're trying to tell and the goals behind that and how the packaging is going to help you tell that story. And then ultimately, well, if that's actually going to allow you to make money or, or how you can op- improve, you know, your margins. So it's, it starts at the beginning. You're absolutely right. Now, of course, a lot of customers have been in the industry for two or three or five or 10 years, and they're not starting at the beginning, but there's brand refreshers and uh, there's rebranding and there's, you know, launching new products and moving into new markets or really just wanting to improve your margins or the the service of your supply chain. And fortunately, we're really able to speak and we're, we're comfortable in providing solutions in all of those areas. So a lot of times they can be combined as well. So a lot of times a customer will want to, you know, rebrand their packaging, which they really realize gives them an opportunity to maybe take the step up impact-wise in sustainability and adjust their story because they've done so. So that might look like something from, you know, moving Uh, from glass into PET plastic. And, you know, a lot of people might take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, that sounds less sustainable, right? And in some cases that might be true. It might be less sustainable. But in a lot of cases, if we're shipping a glass jar from Asia to somewhere to be printed in the United States and then to another part of the United States to be filled and then to a third market, you know, the fuel consumption behind shipping that glass uh, is pretty heavy and then you also have to consider that that glass probably isn't actually going to be recycled uh, or may not be recycled. Yeah. So we're we're really able to kind of look at all these nuances in the supply chain and help a customer really understand what is going to be impactful to their customer, their end-use customer as well as the environment and then tell that story accurately. Or you know sometimes it could be moving into a pouch which yep. you know if they're doing a rebrand and it's for a not something that needs like that really premium feel. A, a pouch is an incredibly effective and sustainable way to go. Not necessarily because now you're seeing pouches that are biodegradable or compostable, which is you know a whole other avenue of conversation mm-hmm. that at this time is pretty questionable in its efficacy. But because pouches are so light uh, and they're so easy to transport, you can transport so many of them yeah. at one time. You know the fuel consumption on those is is pretty low when you look at it you know per piece versus something like pet plastic or then glass which is you know the most most consumptive so you know we really take a look at all of the angles when uh, when it comes to things like that and are really able to speak to individuals and th- that's one of the best things about ae global is because we provide custom packaging solutions we don't have to put a uh, round peg into a square hole we're able to look at every single brand's you know, mission, vision, and values, and then craft a program that communicates those as well as is effective. Yeah, yeah. You
2: mentioned a couple kind of base, sort of substrates there: glass, the plastics, the um, pouches. You mentioned some biodegradable. I mean, what what do we really have in terms of options at the market at this point? Because I know everyone is kind of everyone hates plastic. Yep. <laughs> like yep. I don't want any plastic. And, and rightfully so. Yeah. But but then but but then what? Right? Like we we've got these you know quasi, you know, biodegradable things, you know, but mm-hmm. then you run into other issues around it. Like, what what are the what are the real viable options in the market right now when someone's considering their packaging materials?
3: Well, you know, you have the classics, like the glass and the plastic. And you know, ultimately, glass and plastic are still very effective, and especially in, in certain municipalities that have a good recycling infrastructure. Or if you can get them manufactured, you know, somewhere close to you, uh, they are very effective still. And they're also very effective at protecting the product, you know, atmospherically. From UV light as well. And these are all kind of concerns, especially when we need to think on the premium flower side. The product does need to be protected. Uh, And there, of course, also, you can easily affect child resistant functionality into those glass and plastic enclosures. And of course, there's pouches. You know, one thing that we think kind of gets overlooked, which is great, are folding cartons. Um, You know, folding cartons can be made very sustainably. They're not heavy. Now, of course, they're not going to give you the protection of flower, but for other product categories, Uh, Folding cartons are great solutions, especially for things like cartridges. Uh, You know, folding Mm -hmm. cartons are cost effective. They can be transported very, very easily. They're very light, especially if you manufacture them the right way. They're great for labor. You know, you can manufacture your folding cartons in a way that when you're doing that end pack out at your facility, you know, it shouldn't take more than a few seconds to get each unit packed out. And then you can also choose sustainable substrates. Uh, So you can get, you know, FSC or FSI certified paperboard, which means that it's from a uh, renewable forest or you responsibly uh, harvested trees and then you can use things like soy-based inks that allow it to truly be recycled or recyclable or sometimes even compostable. So there there's a lot of different options and uh, you know a lot of different ways to kind of think about things, but again, the the most important questions are, you know, where where are you distributing? What is your brand story? Where are you manufacturing? And then how do we really create a program that is sustainable based off of your kind of nuances of your brand
2: yeah yeah what are the i mean because branding is so it's such an evolving aspect of the cannabis industry right now and you know given the fact that you have such kind of limited or at least you know complicated regulations around what you can advertise and where you can advertise and you know i think that the package in the dispensary ends up becoming a huge component to brands impact or a band's ability to communicate to consumers like what what Because what are the factors or what are the opportunities that companies have in terms of branding from a package point of view?
3: Yeah, well, I would like you said, I would identify that packaging is one of the biggest opportunities that brands have to get their message out there and to make that brand name that to, to build that emotional connection, you know, between them and their customers because they are so limited elsewhere. Most social media platforms, arguably besides LinkedIn, are not very friendly and you're not building a relationship with your customers on LinkedIn, uh, you know, because that, that's such a B2B driven platform and, you know, commercial advertising, you know, most mainstream broadcasting, uh, you may very well never see cannabis products in those avenues. So it, it, it's in the store, you know, in these retailers where one, uh, when I'm in a dispensary environment, I already have a, a greater sense of trust just because you are distributed in that dispensary. You know, it's like when you're in CBS. You are automatically provided a level of trust for the products that are available in CBS by the simple fact that they're available in CBS. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, that's often overlooked that there's already a, a kind of implied or innate level of trust just by the fact that you're on the shelf in that dispensary. And then, You know, what I love to see is is really authentic and engaging branding. Oftentimes I point to Wild, right? Wild has done such an incredible job uh, with their branding and storytelling and really knowing their niche too. I think lots of different types of consumers uh, love the Wild branding and love the Wild products, but you you know, you've really seen them kind of hit it home with like the so-called soccer moms or the wine moms, right? Or even not just the moms, but really that maybe 45 plus Older kind of professional who maybe was kind of curious or maybe doesn't really like to smoke, but now they love these gummies, right? And they love the branding, and it makes them feel like they're taking something that's kind of healthcare oriented. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's really again goes back to knowing your consumer and then really being authentic in your approach to your branding, Um, having an authentic story. And really, you know, not trying to be too many things to too many people, because ultimately, there's so many different types of cannabis consumers. uh, And, you know, you're really not going to attract them all. So it's, you know, you have to be authentic in your storytelling and your approach and uh, in your branding and and kind of cover the whole story for your consumer there. Yeah. You mentioned before um, child resistant
2: packaging. I'm curious what other kind of requirements, you know, regulatory requirements come into play when you're dealing with cannabis packaging. And then, you know, obviously we're in this uh, kind of nightmare of state-by-state scenario, each with like, like different regulations. And then those regulations get applied in different ways in different states. I mean, how do you navigate the, you know, kind of the regulatory requirements when it comes to packaging?
3: Well, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, I think I think what's fun, what something that can be both fun and really illuminating to do is start looking at like two totally different states and kind of compare them. Maybe two opposite states, you know, like you can look at California and then you can look at Florida, right? Mm-hmm. And California has, they've had some restrictions. Uh, of course it is California, but by and large, you know, there's lots of different types of branding going on in California. It's a very established market and, There are brands that have developed that now have loyal followings, you know, and they're kind of niches. We already spoke about wild, but then I think about a brand like Jeter, for example, that's just dominated the pre-roll market, this kind of really premium pre-roll market, totally different consumer and crowd than the wild consumer. You know, I would call the Jeter consumer that 21 plus younger millennial, you know, maybe they like hip hop or they love basketball or Things like that, and the branding is totally different. You know, it's kind yeah. of it's got a cartoon-ish kind of feel, not in a not in a uh, childlike way, but you know, in that young adult uh, type of way. But then, you know, the, these brands in California are really able to diversify and build their own unique followings in their own niche markets because of the opportunity to do all of that branding. And then, you know, if you fly across the country and you land in Florida and you go to a dispensary down here, well, there's no opportunity for that. Uh, there, there's no opportunity for storytelling or uniqueness or any type of, well, outside of the sterile, white, medical type of approach that Florida has crafted so far. But there are brands that sell in both markets. You know, so how does a brand, for example, like Cureleaf, who has a big Florida footprint, sell that same product in California where they have the opportunity, they don't have to, but they have the opportunity to have uh, much more upgraded packaging, much better storytelling. And this is something that we help brands navigate, you know, day in and out, uh, as well as the most efficient ways to still have your products in both state, maintain some type of brand integrity, and maintain yeah. profitability.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems like um, both a nightmare and also an opportunity.
1: Yes, <laughs> like that's you, exactly if get, right. If you yeah. do
2: it right, like you could really take advantage of it. If you if you don't figure this out, it could really be hobbling for you in terms of really developing a national brand.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah,
2: and uh, you know, I also wanted to sort of touch on kind of where we are with global supply chains and you know availability of materials, you know, raw materials, processing. I mean, I, I know. Obviously, anything coming out of China the last, you know, two years has been highly problematic, you know, with lack of availability, delays, containers, things sitting in ports, things sitting on ships, you know, so Mm -hmm. I guess what do you see in terms of people's kind of strategy and trends? Are people looking to do things in the U.S. again? Are people looking for other countries that have less complexities? I mean, is... Cost still a driver, and people are just dealing with getting things out of Asia and and China specifically.
3: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. The past two years have really exposed a lot of challenges in the global supply chain, and I think have brought a lot of people to think differently about how they're going to build their business and and approach you know distribution. We early out in the pandemic made a great move, which was to bring on a director of global sourcing, who really you know his role was to spend a lot of thought time, you know, thinking about possible challenges, uh, possible momentum shifts in terms of manufacturing locations. It's really been helpful for us. We've been able to stay in front of these supply chain issues. And whether that's on our side, you know, a solution like uh, buying excess inventory for customers, especially on more of the commodity type items that you know, we know we'll be able to sell through. That way we can still offer reduced lead times and help our customers stay on top of their supply and availability. We've also seen a lot of things shift. Glass and plastic, you're still really beholden to China. That may shift over the more medium to long term. Uh, you know, the facilities required to, to do glass blowing and things like that on a commercial scale are expensive and costly to build out. Yeah. So those shifts have taken a little bit more time. Uh, but you have seen customers move from those product categories into other types of solutions you know based on like you said Shanghai locking down or Beijing locking down or you know different municipalities and and areas locking down but also the supply chain crisis and, you know, you don't want them to then sit on a container for an extra 90 days. Exactly. Uh, plus, we still have the tariffs in place. So, you know, all of these factors are both pushing manufacturing options to other areas of the world. Uh, we've seen pouches move heavily from China to places like India, as well as domestically in the United States. The folding cartons are If you're not buying your folding carton in the United States, you're you're probably just not even buying a folding carton. Or you should fire your procurement guy um, because, you know, folding cartons now are fully back in the United States. Uh, There there really is no reason to buy them abroad anymore. So, yeah, it's created uh, lots of shifts. You know, we see a lot going on in Mexico now and and would expect that that's just going to continue over this next decade. But I think ultimately it's required these larger single state operators and the multi-state operators to just move further towards what we call the the CPGification of cannabis. You know, they have to start demand planning and forecasting and just be really kind of forward thinking, whereas everyone might have been a little bit reactionary in the early days.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Anything um, that you think over the next three, four, five years, cannabis companies are really going to need to kind of think about either in terms of products or materials or strategy or operations or process? Like, What what are the big kind of trends that you're going to see in terms of things related to packaging over over that time period?
3: Well, I think you're going to see a a more leveled out understanding of what products need to be in child-resistant enclosures versus what don't. Uh, So I think this is maybe in the more medium term, but I think as more established states start to understand what really makes sense and what really doesn't. So for example, what I mean by that is, uh, let's look at two different product categories. Let's look at gummies and look. let's look at cartridges. Is there really a need for a cartridge to be in a child-resistant packaging? What are the chances that a, a three-year-old is going to put a cartridge together, turn it on, and then correctly inhale it to consume the product? I, I think most of us would agree that the chances of that are pretty low. Now, on the gummy side, those absolutely should be in a child-resistant enclosure because it, it would be very easy and very intuitive to understand that a child would, well, just put a gummy in their mouth and then they would have consumed cannabis that clearly you you did not intend or want them to consume. So, but we still see all these different product categories where child-resistant enclosures probably don't make a lot of sense. Uh, Again, they they drive up the cost, they slow delivery times, and they create a lot of excess packaging that probably isn't needed. So uh, we think that's one thing that there might be some better understanding around. It would also be great, you know, something like uh, safe banking would really move, uh, obviously, the entire industry forward. But, you know, with that would really help companies have whether it's more available resources uh, for investment in their supply chain and, and ultimately their packaging that, you know, that would be a big lift to the industry. And then, you know, ultimately you get to that end game of federal legalization and then some type of legislation by the FDA where we would have some more semblance of one marketplace where companies could really behave like more traditional CPG companies and kind of really approach branding from, you know, a national type of strategy instead of still this you know, 30-something place fragmented type ecosystem.
2: Yeah. Derek, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about AE Global, what's the best way to get that information?
3: Uh, Head right to our website, uh, www.aegpkg.com. Got it. I'll make sure that the uh, link
2: is in the show notes there so people can get that. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Bruce. I really
3: appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing this.
2: That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time.
1: You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward/newsletter slash newsletter.
2: This podcast is a part of the C-suite radio network.
3: For more top business podcasts, visit c-sweetradio.com.